This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What's up, guys? This is Henry with Bro History, and I would like to take care of some quick housekeeping things before we start the episode. First and foremost, want to apologize for the shaky schedule as of late. Uh, we've been both traveling, Danny and I, and we've been trying to get something out before Thanksgiving. So last night, we recorded this episode over Skype. I know some people complain about Skype audio. I just listened to it. I think it sounds completely fine. So just wanted to give you that fair warning. Uh, second, really just wanted to wish you all a happy and wonderful Thanksgiving. Make sure that you spend time with family, eat food, have fun. Don't worry about politics. And hey, maybe even bring up bro history. You're going to learn a lot of cool, interesting things about the origins of World War I on this episode. So it's a good chance to make your family think you're smart. But uh, this is part three in our Origins of World War I series or Causes of World War I series. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy it. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, Danny? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I can't complain. How how are you doing? I know you're traveling a lot right now. Oh, man. I've been gone for the entire month of November, and uh, I'll be back on Friday, but you know, it's it's now Tuesday, and I'm literally just counting down the days. I mean... It's just been a lot of stuff, a funeral, two weddings, uh, fucking whole lot of traveling and uh, just haven't been in my regular place here. So if this sounds, I don't know, maybe less than ideal, <laughs> I'll just apologize in advance. Well, we'll forgive you. We'll forgive you. Uh, well, I'm sorry about you know the funeral. Earlier this summer, I had really bad wedding fatigue because we're at the age, once you hit the age of 28. 28, 29. I don't know. Maybe it's different for different parts of the country, but in the Northeast, once you hit 28, 29, that's when everyone you know starts getting married. In our case, so it's over like the mid 30s. <laughs> yeah. Now it's, yeah, it's, it's, the age keeps on being pushed back. So a lot of people I know had weddings and then they were pushed back during COVID. So all these weddings compound, compounded into one year. We had, yep. we had um, 18 weddings in a year. It was, yep. uh, it was quite annoying. I didn't have quite as many. I had 10 this year, but keep in mind, I live in Puerto Rico now. So every wedding I go to is I a know. destination wedding. <laughs> like I can't just mop over in a car, you know? <laughs> All right. So let us talk about what we're talking about today. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the origins of World War One, And the reason why we're doing that is because most people just start the story with Archduke Ferdinand, with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and and how uh, basically the political line system imploded in Europe. And that's why there was a war that killed over 10 million people. 
but no one really concentrates on the events and and the different things that that actually lead up to that being such a uh, catastrophic or such a powder keg. So this series, we've been trying to to do that, and we've been trying to tackle it from different angles. So the past couple of episodes, we've been mainly focusing on the polarization of Europe. So the transformation of Europe from a unipolar system to a bipolar system, meaning Europe developed into two rival power blocks that were almost guaranteed to duke it out. And by 1914, Europe was uh, you know, pretty much divided into two camps, the, the Entente, uh, consisting of Britain, France, and Russia, and then the Central Powers, which were uh, predominantly Germany and uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, Italy was also part of, the, part of this as well, but they went neutral when the war started, and they you know, eventually kind of backstabbed them and joined the Allies. But, you know, this division is, is caused by a lot of different things, um, you know, such as imperial rivalries in, in, in Africa and Asia, uh, you know, a different you know, arms races that are going on between the British and the Germans. But most of all, it's really just caused by the creation of the United German state uh, itself, because it instantly becomes the largest uh, industrial power in Europe. And. Uh, it becomes a really big rival to pretty much all of its neighbors. And the major problem was, for Germany, was that they were geographically vulnerable. So it was sandwiched between a revanchist France on its western border and um, and the, Austro the, the Austria-Hungarian Empire and, and the Russian Empire on their eastern border, eastern and southern border. So the number one policy goal for Germany um, you know, Otto von Bismarck, who was running the the foreign policy in Germany, was to prevent a hostile coalition from its forming on its borders, aka they wanted to keep France, whose land they had annexed in the creation of their state, from becoming allies with Austria-Hungary or, or, or Russia. Therefore, the strategy was to keep Austria-Hungary and Russia on good terms. So, Neither one of them would feel the, the, the need to join an alliance with France. However, there was a big challenge to this. Um, Russia and Austria-Hungary had conflicting interests. And they had these conflicting interests and in, in, in probably the most politically unstable part of Europe, if not the world. Um, you know, there's two hotspots going on right now in, in world politics. One of them is China, with you know, with with the uh, tensions between carving up different parts of the falling uh, falling uh, Qingdan. The other one is in the Balkans, with the same thing, with with uh, with different powers kind of fighting for influence with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Russia was using Serbia as a launch pad to promote its pan-Slavic agenda in the Balkans. And essentially, they were fanning the flames of Serbian nationalism. Serbia in the early 20th century, it was a it was a, a mega cauldron for uh, you know hyper nationalist, and these nationalists were were pushing the idea of a greater Serbia, which was a pseudo mystical, uh, ultra ultra nationalist narrative based on the idea of restoring the, the old greater Serbia of the, of the pre-Ottoman Empire. 
the Serbian Empire was this medieval state from the 14th century that was supposedly like a very, you know, a glorious chapter in the history of the Serbian race. And, you know, it, it ends with the defeat of uh, Prince Lazar in the legendary battle of, of Kosovo by, by, by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, basically, they all fight to the death. You know, almost every Serbian soldier and every single Ottoman soldier, they all die in this battle. And, and the only reason why the Ottomans are able to conquer Serbia after that is because there's no one left to fight. I've actually found this quote from this, this book that was written right after World War I. This is the first sentence of the book, and this is all I needed. I was like, okay, I'm just going to take this quote. <laughs> Slavonic <all> nationality. <laughs> that's all I read in this book. And I read a couple <laughs> of random paragraphs, but this is, I just had to get one of these quotes. I was, I was looking for a quote like this, and it gave it to me instantly. Slavonic nationalities are the despair of the historian. Their story is complex beyond ordinary complexity and bloody beyond ordinary bloodiness. To write the history even of that part of the Slavonic race known as the Southern Slavs or Hugo Slavs is like threading a labyrinth. Jesus. I mean, it's a good quote. (laughs) It's totally true. This history is crazy as hell. I mean, we've attempted it at least once before, and it's it's never super clear. It's at no matter what time frame that you tackle with Serbia and the Balkans, it's always just very, it's very, it's very confusing because there's so many different groups. There's so many different countries. It's, I mean, I don't think if you gave a map of the Balkans to really anyone, I think maybe 0.0001% of, of the human population would be able to, to identify every single country and put them in the right map. I, um, I, I mean, I've been reading a lot of books on Serbia and and, and not just like old Serbia, but, you know, the Yugoslavia and and the Balkans wars and Kosovo and and Bosnia. And if you get me on a bad day, I couldn't do it. I'd be like, fuck, I forget. Right. Where was Macedonia again? Shit. Like it's, it's a a complicated history. (laughs) God, where was Albania placed again? Ah, Oh, God damn it. I know where Croatia is because it's by the beach. But um, it's complicated. It's a complicated history with with um, with a lot of war, with a lot of uh, resentment, um, and a lot of shit that went on. It's a really fascinating history when you when you read it, it especially you know the the pre World War One era, the 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 World War Two era where you know you have probably probably the most successful. Uh, resistance to the Nazis anywhere in the world uh, with the with the uh, you know the Serbian partisan armies. It's you know the the construction of the of Yugoslavia, the the fall of Yugoslavia, the the um, you know the wars in Bosnia, the wars in Kosovo. It's it's just an extremely fascinating and rich history. On this on this episode, we're going to focus on some of the things that were going on in Serbia, which really led to you know serbia being that giant hotspot in the world and and uh being the powder keg that that really started world war one basically they you know serbia was the straw that was the, the, was the ukraine back. was the ukraine of that era yeah it was it was the ukraine of that era there, there's similarities not just 
in that it was a hot spot, but also also with like, you know, different ethnic groups and border disputes and, and, and strong nationalism, having resentment of, of former powers or, or, or powers that were, um, you know, you know, previously uh, dominant over you, um, geopolitical struggles against, you know, two greater powers being, you know, Russia's involved in this, but also Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans are all involved kind of pulling at the strings of the ter- of Serbia. So it's there's a lot of similarities. And you know, I would recommend studying this history if you want to get a more holistic view of what's going on in Ukraine. I, I think it would be helpful. But something that is at the core of Serbian nationalism in the 19th and 20th century was their historic struggle against the Muslim Turks. So in Serbian history, the Ottomans are these these terrible tyrants. They tried to, you know, erase the Orthodox Church. They confiscated her Serbian homes. They had oppressive laws where, you know, for example, Serbs can only own mules, not horses or camels. You know, churches were pulled down and, and, and replaced with mosques. Um, you know, they couldn't worship in public. They couldn't have funerals in, in, in daylight. Um, you know, Turkish men were granted, uh, you know, first dibs on, on Serbian servant women on their wedding nights. Um, you know, everybody knows about the Turkish Janissary armies where, you know, you have kidnapped generations of children who are, who are forced to fight as slaves. Um, you know, there's other there's stories about these these, uh, you know, slave soldiers being sexually abused by by their commanders. This was the narrative. And, and I'm not really an expert to, to, to tell you how true this narrative is or how close it is to real history or not. But the point is, is that this was the narrative. This is the narrative. So that's what really matters, what the narrative is. And the Serbs are were a humiliated race. And, you know, the 20th century was going to be their time to come back to be a great civilization again. Make Serbia great again. Right. Yeah. Make make. And there's I mean, you'll find some analogies to the even kind of modern day domestic politics uh, as we go through the story. Now, the problem of for the Serbian nationalist was this expansive concept of what greater Serbia consisted of. Because to them, it was every spot on which a Serbian Orthodox church or monastery ever existed, which is basically everywhere in the Balkans. Right. We, so we've actually said this a few neighbors. times on the show, and it comes up every now and again. But it's just the craziest idea that, okay, is there a Serbian there or is there a Serbian Orthodox church? Okay, cool. That's Serbia. Literally anywhere. You know, could be on the moon if there's a Serbian Orthodox Church, that's also Serbia. Well, I mean, to them, it's just that, you know, the Serbs were the dominant group there. And, uh, you know, everyone, Croats and stuff, they're just Serbs. Like everyone is just a Serb here, um, maybe with a different dialect of of Serbian that they mm-hmm. speak. But you know, the point is, is that everyone over here, they're Serbs. They're descendants of us. We should all be a state. We should all be one group. And, you know, we're kind of like the core of that. Here is a quote from... One of my favorite historians, Ralph Rako, the immediate origins of the 1914 war lie in the twisted politics of the kingdom of Serbia, 
In June 1903, Serbian army officers murdered their king and queen in the palace and threw their bodies out a window, at the same time massacring various royal relations, cabinet ministers, and members of the palace guards. It was an act that horrified and disgusted many in the civilized world. The military clique replaced the pro-Austrian Obrinovich dynasty with the anti-Austrian Karadorjeviks. The new government pursued a pro-Russian pan-Slavist policy in a, net, in a network of secret societies sprang up closely linked to the government, whose goal was the liberation of the Serb subjects of Austria and Turkey and perhaps the other South Slavs as well. So I actually can't wait to talk about that uh, murder, but we'll get to that later. Why don't we um, start off with uh, what led up to the murder and just so we can get some context on this, because I don't think anyone knows who the hell these two families are. So maybe you can explain. You shouldn't be expected to know who these two families is there. It's a very esoteric topic. I mean, I have I'm still having a hard time pronouncing their names, even though I've practiced uh, <laughs> over and over again to do it. But the Obrinovich dynasty and then the care jo- the care of Georgievics, they're kind of remind me of the uh the montagues and the capillaries what the hell are capulets. they in that's the capulets and the montagues mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that they have that dynamic or um what's that old the you know those uh the those uh, rednecks those rednecks who would like shoot each other and had a, a generation long rivalry the Be- the Beverly Hillbillies. I don't remember the names of the two families but yeah I know no they weren't the about. Beverly Hillbillies the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> the TV show <laughs> I know what you're talking Beverly about. Beverly Hillbillies was a corny TV show made in the 70s. It had nothing to do with the two families that hate that. Would, all right, I digress. The <laughs> point is that these families were rivals and they hated each other's guts. Uh-huh. So in the early 1800s, and this is where we're going to start this, there is a wave of Serbian insurgencies against the local Turkish Janissaries. So this is, you know, 1800s. The Turks still have control of the Balkans. These insurgencies, what they really do is they they really just mark the beginning of the end for the Ottoman Empire um, in Europe, at the very least, in the Balkans. And the most famous of these rebellion leaders was a man named George Petrovic. And his name was, uh, he was called Kara George, or uh, Black George was his nickname. And he seizes Belgrade in 1806, Belgrade is the capital of Serbia. And Serbia, under under Kara George, is free from the Ottomans for about seven years until they come back. And, uh, you know, they reconquer the place. Kara George is, is, uh, you know, sent to uh, Austria in exile. And then two years later, there's another uprising. And this uprising is led by a man named Milos Obrinovic. The difference between this rebellion and the previous one is this time the Serbians make a deal with the Ottomans where they basically get a level of autonomy, but are still considered a principality of the Ottomans. So after that, you know, these uh, these Serbian exiles, they come they come home and, um, you know, at this point they're coming from Russia or uh, or uh, modern day Moldova to be more specific, the the Austrians had sent their Serbian exiles to Russia because frankly, they just didn't really want to deal with them. So they <laughs> sent them over to Russia. 
um, who had, you know, kind of more linkage and more ties to them. But Kara George was, uh, you know, he was eager to come back for obvious reasons because, you know, he can come back and there's a deal in place and, you know, he has some room to maybe start a more concrete independence movement. Well, guess what happens? I don't know. He has him killed or some shit. <laughs> yeah. So Kara George, he reaches out to his close family friend, uh, his godfather. His godfather's name is Vule to help smuggle him into the country. And, uh, you know, Vule is like, yeah, of course, you're my godson. I'll give you safe harbor. I'll give you, uh, you know, a place to stay. So Kara George meets up with them and and uh, Vule goes, uh, goes uh, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> and then uh, Kara George goes, no, how could you? You're my godfather. Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> you know, act. You know, it doesn't actually play out like that. But uh, what is true is that Kara George is assassinated by someone hired by his godfather, Boulay. And, um, you know, they cut his head off. They they send it to the Ottomans and then his head is put on display in, in Istanbul or or wherever. I think it's Istanbul where his head is sent, um, you know, as a message. Kind of Ned Starkish, right? Very Game mm-hmm, of Thrones where much. they take the head and, and uh, you know, have that as your as your warning. Or rebelling against the king. It turns out that Vule, his godfather, is now on the payroll of Milos uh, Obrinovich. And part of the deal with the Ottomans, because the Obrinovich dynasty is the one that makes the deal with the Ottomans, was to set up their, you know, opposing rival family faction, the the, the Kara George, the Kara Georgeviks. Mm-hmm. So he had to go. Kara George, Black George had to go. So uh, Milos, he is then anointed the prince of Serbia, which, uh, you know, really kicks off this bitter family feud that lasts about 85 years. And uh, between 1817 and 1878, so those are the years that Serbia is is a principality of the Ottoman Empire. It is just a complete and utter shit show. And to make a long story short, because we could spend the entire podcast on this era, um, these families just consistently kill each other. And then they replace each other with their with their own uh, head of state through, you know, some type of insurrection or conspiracy or 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 murder or assassination. So very few of them, very few of these leaders who are going back and forth, you know, they're going back and forth between Prince of Serbia are actually dying of natural causes. Hmm. So, um, Serbia is extremely politically unstable to the point where governments are just completely collapsing. And it was completely normal for a government to collapse within a couple of years. This sort of changes in in the 1860s. They have a new prince. His name is Prince Milan. He is uh, the grand nephew of the original prince, Prince Milos. He comes to power after his cousin Mihailo, uh, who does not have a prince heir, is assassinated. And after 1882, he he becomes the first king in modern Serbian history. So there are two stages to his rule. Well, there, actually, there's three, but we'll get into that in a second. The first stage 
he rules as a prince in, in the Ottoman vassal state. The second stage, he actually rules as a true monarch. But what's important to note is Serbia is pro-Russia during the period of them being an Ottoman vassal state. After they get their independence, they actually start to tilt towards the Austrians. And the reason why it's like this is because during the Serbian War of Independence, they pushed out the Ottomans with the direct backing of the Russians. However, Milan, the, the Milan government, the not Italy, Milan, but the, uh, the, the, you know, the ruler of, of Serbia, he wasn't happy with the Treaty of San Stefano, which was the, um, you know, it was one of the agreements that allocates territories to the winning parties after the, the uh, Serbian War for Independence against the Turks. The reason why he was unhappy is because the treaty created a large Bulgarian state, this autonomous state. And Bulgaria was, was uh, you know, another that was uh, under Ottoman rule for about 500 years. Russia had actually wanted this greater Bulgaria to exist. Bulgaria was actually more important to the Russians in Serbia because it was going to serve as a launching pad for their, you know, their main dream of occupying Constantinople. Um, you know, Constantinople was the center of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Eastern Orthodox Church. You know, they kind of believed that it was their right to rule that. So the problem with this greater Bulgarian state was that it was going to absorb cities that Serbia had won in their war with the Turks. So these borders are actually um, these borders are actually revised after the Treaty of Berlin. So there isn't a Bulgaria that's that's created at this time. But the Serbian government, um, this attempt to create this Bulgarian state actually puts them at odds against the Russians. So here is a, uh, a quote from the, the Institute for Political Studies from Belgrade. The difficult situation for Serbia was nevertheless avoided with the help and support of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it came with a price. The price of Aust the Austro-Hungarian aid at the Berlin Congress related to the admittance of Serbia to its economic and political sphere. Before the Congress of Berlin on July 8, 1878, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Serbia and Austro-Hungary signed an economic agreement that applied to three areas construction of railways, trade agreements, and questions of Jurdap. Jurdap was a territorial dispute. Although the trade interest between the two sides should have been resolved in a later treaty, the basis for the formulation of such a contract was unfavorable to Serbia. The railway, which was supposed to be built in order to obtain connections with the Austrian railways and with promised help with the connection to the Bulgarian and Turkish railways, allow the realization of Serbian trade, economic, and political interests as well. The purpose of this railway was to essentially connect Europe and the Middle East together. That was like kind of the, the reason why there was international backing for this railway, because it was just going to increase uh, trade between both continents. The railway contract concluded in April 1880. However, Serbians were afraid that the great material resources necessary for the construction of railways would greatly aggravate the state of public finances. So they tried and they succeeded in negotiating with the Austro-Hungary to reduce Serbian obligations. 
While the construction of railway in Serbia was in complete harmony with the classic understanding of economic liberalism, radical opposition objected to it for financial reasons, as well as the inadequate conditions of construction and exploitation. Given the large loan for, of, for construction of railway, 37 MPs demanded elections for the Grand National Assembly, believing that only it can decide on such important issues. Speaking about the railway convention, Nikolai, Nikola Pasek in the National Assembly said, and Nikola Pasek is the opposition leader, the, the, uh, he's the opposition leader who belongs to the radical party. So they're the main opposition force to the monarchy in Serbia at the time. So they're kind of like a right, they're, they're kind of like the, um, they represent the peasant class. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they represent the, um, basically kind of like the, 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 um, the normal folk, which Serbia had a lot of because it was primarily, you know, an agricultural country. Um, so the government emphasized that the railway promotes trade. The radicals explained that it improves the world trade, but not trade in Serbia. For the government, the railway is a modern achievement that contributes to linking the old and newly liberated parts of Serbia, um, as well as the inclusion of the country in the world economy, while quite the opposite for the radicals. It represented a massive economically inefficient cost, but also a threat to the independence of development, the independent development of a country. Is, uh, I just want to get this straight because they didn't, the the nationalists didn't want the railway because they felt like it would harm Serbia's independence. Like, I don't get it. You Generally speaking, like increasing trade would, would be good for a country like that, wouldn't it? In short, they weren't happy with the deals that they were getting from Austria-Hungary. They kind of thought they were just being used for, for the railroads and they weren't getting like the economic benefit from it and that the Austrians were were kind of the ones who were taking the major profits and they so were like, kind of stuck with the bills. That was that was the problem. So they, they so were like, like it, we're paying for this with our labor and, and, and our budgets and, and um, you know, you're the one who's making most of the profit. So is it kind of like to make a modern comparison, like how when China goes to these underdeveloped countries in places like Africa or South America and like builds them a port or like a train or road or some shit like that. And they basically loan them credit predatorily. And then they say, okay, cool, we're going to use this port and it's going to bring you so much trade, but actually they don't. And China ends up making all the money and they get the bill for it. Is that kind of like the same situation here? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty good comparison. Another another way that you can look at it is that um so there was a trade agreement signed between Austria, Hungary and Serbia and it's it's a typical trade agreement that you see between any developed and uh and in developing country or emerging country. Serbia was importing Austrian finished goods. Meanwhile, the only thing that they were exporting was livestock and agricultural products. I see. And usually when you have that kind of imbalanced trade relationship, the, well, almost always is actually the better way to say it. When you have an imbalanced trade relationship where all you do is just trade uh, natural resources or agricultural goods or uh, livestock, you're almost guaranteed to, to, to be a poor country. Right. Um, you're almost guaranteed to have like a poor, a, a worse living standard. And that's just around the world. If you just, if you just sell natural resources and sell, um, commodities and you don't make things that other countries buy, then you're always going to have that, um, kind of trade imbalance. So that's, that was just one of the frictions between, between Serbia and Austria that that's created through, through these kind of unfavorable financial deals that that serbia you know was was kind of forced to go into right and these this is all set up by that guy milan right or at least his yeah family. so yeah so it's it's the obrinovich dynasty and, and again the reason why they pursue policies with because russia was their was kind of their um the the, the major power that they looked to so they reversed course and went austria hungary because they were upset with Russia for, uh, you know, kind of favoring this Bulgarian empire to the point where um, Milan, the, the Obrenovich dynasty, hated Russia. Like they hate, they couldn't, they they hated Russia because of that. So they mm-hmm. make this pivot where they get this, they get this real close relationship with the Austrians instead. And then they get a raw um, deal economically. In 1883, there is a there is a um, Serbia's radical party takes over parliament with the wide majority and, and the radical party is just the, is the opposition party. That's what they're called. They are radical, but that's their name too. Um, so in response to this, this radical takeover, Milan refuses to appoint a government from, from the radical party. So what he does instead is he just creates his own cabinet of bureaucrats, which in turn, you know, makes, you know, when you, when you bring in your own guys and you're an absolute monarchy, what that kind of does, the 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 negative part of it is that all the mistakes that you're going to make in the future, they're all on you. There's right. sure, there's no one else to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, which makes you a bigger target. So as a distraction to a lot of these domestic problems that are going on, because Serbia is very poor. At this time, they're extremely poor. They're they're among the poorest countries in Europe. Milan declares uh war on bulgaria and um they they go to war with bulgaria over 
over a border dispute, really, uh, Bulgaria you know, uh, declares their independence or their, they, they, uh, they officially declare a unified Bulgaria. Um, but Bulgaria at this time is still a, technically a, a province of the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Ottoman Empire is, again, falling apart at this time. So they, have, they don't have that much pull in Europe anymore. But the expectation was that while Serbia is going to invade from the west, the Ottomans are going to invade Bulgaria from the south. Well, what happens is, is that Serbia invades and then the Ottomans don't. So Serbia invades, they go in alone into Bulgaria and they actually they get whacked. So they lose the war and um, you know Bulgaria actually ends up invading Serbia and it only stops when when, Aust- when Austria-Hungary says uh, they're going to intervene. But it's a humiliating blow for for King Milan and he is eventually forced to abdicate in 1889 the straw that actually breaks the camel's back is that he's he has an affair with a secretary oh, and he leaves juicy. his wife <laughs> and he leaves his wife hoping to uh you know pursue a marriage with with her and um usually divorce in, in royal families is pretty taboo so right I that mean, is the king the of england straw. had to change their like religion to do it <laughs> yeah so he ends up he abdicates and the crown goes to his son alexander who's about 12 years old when there's a, a minor who is put up as king, usually there's some type of regency that's put in in his place. Right. Until the kid comes to age. Well, a couple of years later, so this regency is put in place, but a couple of years, years later, when he turns 16, crown prince Alexander, he's hosting a dinner party for his cabinet members. And during the toast, Crown Prince Alexander has his cabinet arrested. Oh, he has it's you know, Game of, of Thrones these, there. Like very Game of Thrones. He's like toast. You're all under arrest, except just not in English. So the reality was, he didn't think of this. It was his dad. So the the ex King Milan he coordinated this coup, and uh, basically Milan appoints himself hand of the king hand of the king is not the title of what he becomes but it's just easier pretty, to think of it that way game he, of thrones yes yeah, think of it like that hand of the king uh, he becomes a chief royal advisor he takes the title of king father milan and uh this is what i meant when i said three stages of milan's rule he he rules uh you know, as the primary monarch, but just not with the title of king. Mm-hmm. The way that this all plays out, it just completely delegitimizes the Obrinovich dynasty. To add to that, you know, this was not a liberal monarchy. Um, you know, it closed down uh, newspapers. It, it put political enemies in jail. It uh, excluded the opposition party from 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 politics. All that bad shit that we we associate with authoritarian governments. Well, the breaking point comes when Alexander takes a very unpopular wife. Her name is uh, Draga Masson. Draga, she's about ten years older than him, and uh, you know she she's she's actually one of his mom's friends. 
Oh, juicy. Weird as like, <laughs> like weird. It's like in Arrested Development with uh with Lucille and Lucille. Mm-hmm. You ever watch that show? You watch Arrested Development? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And Buster dates his mom's friend Lucille, but his mom's name is Lucille. It's uh it's a funny it's part of the show. Super awkward. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's just weird. Dating your mom's friend is is, is strange. And maybe she was so hot. She, Who knows? Do you think Drago was hot? Maybe. Well, she had the the issue was more like even more so than her age is that she was alleged to have had numerous sexual affairs with people who are high up in in the ministry. So um, I have a quote from, from Chris Clark's book, sleepwalkers where he writes about this. It's, it's pretty funny during a heated meeting of the crown council, when ministers attempted in vain to dissuade the King from marrying Mason, the interior interior minister, George Jenkick came up with a powerful argument. Sire, you cannot marry her. She has been everyone's mistress, mine included. (laughs) The minister's reward for his candor was a hard slap across the face. Bro, he just said, hey, man, we're going to be Eskimo brothers. You shouldn't do this. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, hey, everyone banged your wife. You can't do this. It's going to look bad on you. And you're the king. We can't have that. I'm going to continue this, though. How about there were oh, wait, similar... I, got, I got one for you. I got one for you. Isn't it wasn't like Nancy Reagan known around like don't disrespect Nancy Reagan. Damn it. <laughs> president's wife, former president's wife. Hey, man, um, I'm not disrespecting her power to her. I'll continue with Chris Clark. There were similar encounters with other senior officials at one rather overwrought cabinet meeting. The acting the acting prime minister even proposed placing the king under palace arrest or having him bundled out of the country by force in order to prevent the union from being solemnized. So intense was the opposition to her among the political classes that the king found it impossible for a time to recruit suitable candidate candidates into senior posts. The news of Alexander and Draga's engagement alone was enough to trigger the resignation of the entire cabinet, and the king was obliged to make do with an electric wedding cabinet of little-known figures. So this marriage also breaks down the relationship between Alexander and King Milan. Um, Milan resigns of hand of king, and he writes a letter to his son on June 1990, 1990, 1900. June 1900, he declared that Alexander was pushing Serbia into an abyss and closed with a forthright warning. I shall be the first to cheer the government, which shall drive you from the country after such a folly on your part. So his dad, this, you know, this unpopular marriage ruins the relationship between dad and son and um, the actual ruler who's, act, you know, who's running things is. You know, he's out of the picture now. He actually dies a couple of years later while he's he's in exile in Austria. Okay, so this story is admittedly very crazy. Uh, now, like I read some of the notes before we came on, but just like talking about it out loud makes me like have so many questions about this. So the one thing I want to make everyone keep in mind is like this kid's like 16 years old. <laughs> no, he's like, older now. Oh, he's, he's older? He's in his early point? 20s. Okay. Well, he's in his still, early 20s. She, he's a young dude, right? Uh, admittedly very young kid who's the king and he's like and she's only like 30 
30. Right. Well, I mean, you know, she's still. like 35 or something. She's like his senior, right? His his mom's friend. And so, like, the first thing I think of is, like, are historians giving this girl a bad, sh- like, shake? And, like, maybe they were really in love and they're really, like, fucking around. And I don't know. Who cares? I mean, I guess at this time people did care if, you know, women were sleeping around. It's not like 2020 or 2022 or whatever year we're in right now, you know? So like that, that wasn't, that was frowned upon, but like, I wonder how much of this was like exaggeration, you know? Um, and they just didn't like the fact that she was older or didn't like the fact that she, I think she, she was like not anyone special, right? She wasn't anyone that would have furthered or advanced the, you know, the, the Serbian crown in any way. So, you know, I, I just think about like today, like people hating on, um, Meghan Markle because she's like a commoner and like probably also a little bit of latent racism because she's, you know, brown skinned. Um, I think it's more, I don't, I think it's less of a comparison with her. I think it's more of a comparison with King Edward and, and Wallace Simpson. Um, you know, that type of thing. Cause I mean, he wasn't even, Harry wasn't, is not in line for being a King. Um, you know, King Edward was going to be, king but he op- I, the there was such opposition for him uh marrying a a um not a widower but a divorcee i think she was mm-hmm. divorced twice uh wallace simpson from hollywood mm-hmm. it was kind of more like that dynamic they probably mm-hmm. i don't mean i don't know i obviously have zero clue what their relationship was like i'm just looking at the perception of what yeah. what historians have wrote and okay. what historians but, have wrote is just that it was some, it was very unpopular because of those sure maybe they are com- they are completely superficial reasons but regardless of them being superfi- superficial or not that was just the perception among the political elite in serbia when when uh, Again, was, alexander was, was marrying somebody it was it right. was just the it was just the narrative so okay so this dude you know he's Alexander, the the young king, you know, at this point, he's probably very unpopular, right? So what do you do to to get out of that, like, string of unpopularity, (laughs) you know, get shit? Because he he was, like, struggling, like you said, like you read the quote, struggling to have just people fill his cabinet, like senior members fill the cabinet, and literally everyone's quitting. It's like fucking... Twitter, <laughs> you know, um, what does he do? Allegedly, this is what they do is that they think of the scheme to announce a pregnancy. The problem was that she wasn't really pregnant. It was a, apparently a lie and it was a lie to gain public sympathy. So what their what their goal was, was or their plan was to adopt a child in, in secrecy make that child heir to the serbian throne but um it'd be just easier to actually have a kid <laughs> i i don't think she could have a kid that was the issue that was another uh, issue mm. so she was having i guess she was having fertility problems mm-hmm. nevertheless it was like a, it was a scandal where they tried to you know obviously there's nothing wrong with adoption but you know in the, in this case that, you know, them lying about it, it, it just became a political scandal. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, you know, create any moral judgment on these characters. And again, just looking at. Just telling the story through the lens just, of just, the history. Just, just, yeah, just telling the story through the, the lens of popular perception. 
you know, they also do some really strange PR campaigns where they start naming like libraries and administrative buildings after the queen. Um, then there becomes a rumor that they are going to um, anoint the queen's brother as as the heir to the throne. They they become an they became an absolutely hated monarch. In addition to that, it was, it was not only like the radical parties, but the the banking and merchant class turned against them. Um, again, they felt that they were getting screwed by these economic deals with the with Austria Hungary. But most importantly, the military starts to turn on the monarch. That ain't good. So during so during the summer of 1901, there's a military conspiracy that's that's crystallized around this young lieutenant of the Serbian army. He's known as Abyss. Um, his real name is Dragutin Dmitrievic. Um, I'm having problems pronouncing a Serbian name, but I'm going to read from Clark, from Clark. Abyss was made for the world a political conspiracy. Obsessively secretive, utterly dedicated to his military and political work, ruthless in his methods, and easily composed in moments of crisis, Abyss was not a man who could have had who could have held sway over a great popular movement, but he did possess in, in abundance the capacity within small groups and private circles to win and groom disciples, to confer a sense of importance upon his following, to silence doubt, and to motivate extreme action. One collaborator described him as a secret force at whose disposal I had to place myself through my reason gives me no grounds for doing so. <laughs> so this guy is like the lead conspirator in replacing this monarch. He's also the guy who eventually plans the killing of Archduke Ferdinand, not to spoil it. But this is this is where the origin of that story starts. So the origins of the Black Hand group, the the, the Serbian national terrorist group that that starts to that uh, murders Archduke Ferdinand. This is that. This is this is where that original conspiracy guy. starts. This is where that network is created. This network that that goes on to do a lot more in the next in the following, you know, decade. So what they first try to do is they poison. They try to poison them. So the plan was Abyss. He he had he had planned this to to uh, kill the royal couple at a ball in central Belgrade. On September 11th, which uh, was the Queen's birthday. And the plan was that they were going to take out the power plant um, and then they were going to they were going to attack the power plant, the, the, the plant that supplied electricity to Belgrade. And then when the lights went off, they were going to set fire to the venue. And while there was a panic. They were going to grab the the queen and king, and then they were going to, you know, take a cloth, uh, cover their mouths with some poison to digest. So that was their first their go to in 1901. They tried they tried doing that, but it ended up failing because failing because the queen was too paranoid to leave her leave the palace and attend the ball. <laughs> um, at this time, so they're so unpopular that they're they're complete paranoid messes. Um, you know, a paranoid monarch who's who's uh in fear of being assassinated you know they usually um try to not leave their home and if they do it's going to be max security so they that that whole thing goes doesn't work out 
Um, this conspiracy, though, doesn't give up because they actually sign a blood oath. So they make they have some weird, creepy ceremony where they uh, they make this blood oath that reads anticipating certain collapses of the state and blaming for the this primarily the king and his paramour, Drago Mason. We swear that we shall murder them and to that effect affix our signatures. So it's they, weird. <laughs> yeah. And this is the level of unpopularity that there was. And then, um, you know, this, w- what they end up doing to get them is that they are able to just recruit enough people where they can storm the building that is heavily guarded. Uh, this story's fucking crazy, by the way. So <laughs> I just had to, had to do this part. Uh, June of 1903, 128 officers of the Serbian army pull up to to the, you know, basically the main entrance of that royal palace in Belgrade, and they just start shooting. Um, there was a pretty short gunfight, and uh, the guards of the palace uh, get arrested and disarmed, and they basically took the keys off of one of the captains in charge and just let themselves into the building. They, uh, of course, make a beeline to that, you know, royal bedchambers, and it was, like, blocked with some big-ass heavy oak doors, and they decided to blow it open, literally, with dynamite. Fucking dynamite. The blast was apparently so strong, it blew the doors off and killed, like, a royal adjutant that was standing behind it, like, immediately, which is crazy. Just, like, have that sight in your mind. Just blow up a door, giant door, and it kills the dude behind him. Crazy. Uh, Also, by exploding the door, uh, they apparently killed the power in the building, you know, probably tripped a breaker or some shit like that. So this whole time, you know, after this, they're doing everything in the dark, but apparently they end up finding some candles and they just kept going. So they're walking around in the dark with some candles, you know, and, you know, they, they, they reach the bedroom where uh, Queen Alexander and, and excuse me, King Alexander and Queen Drago uh, were supposed to be in, and they weren't there. Uh, but they saw that there was like a book on the bedside table that was like still open and they went and touched the sheets and noticed that it was still warm. So, you know, they, they knew that they were there and they couldn't have gotten far. So they start looking around the, the grounds by candlelight, no, no less. And they're just shooting at random places that look like good hiding spots, things like cabinets and sofas and fucking tapestries, <laughs> you know, like in case there was like a hidden room or something like that behind it. Um, and the whole time, the king and the queen were hiding in this, like, tiny little annex uh, that the maids would use to, like, iron their clothes and shit. Um, they apparently took that opportunity, allegedly, to put some clothes on. Apparently, they weren't they weren't dressed. It was nighttime, I guess. Obviously, it must have been terrifying for them. Um, anyway, so they were having some the, – these, you know, army guys, they were, they were having some trouble finding the king because they were doing a pretty good job at hide-and-seek. And – they grab the king's um, first adjutant, real loyal guy to them. I think we talked about him already, Petrovich. Um, and they they disarmed him and seized him after the gunfight early on. And and basically they let him around the castle, you know, in the dark of, again, and you know basically asked him to to call out to the king to see if they can get him to come out. And they were moving around the the grounds, and finally they they come back to the royal chamber for like a second pass there. And one of the guys end up finding the door to that annex that they were hiding behind some drapery. It was locked, of course, but I mean, I suppose they could have broke out the dynamite, but I, I don't know. <laughs> but one of the officers uh, proposed to like cut the wall open with an ax. 
and uh, Petrovich basically like he understood that the jig was up and and he agreed to ask the king to come out and uh, from behind that wooden paneling uh, the king and he was like hey come out king <laughs> and uh, the king was asking like uh, who's that and uh, you know Lazarus was like hey it's me your boy Laza open the door you know and uh, the king asked and I'll quote this apparently can I trust the oath of my officers <laughs> Re- relating to the dudes who shot up the entire place which is kind of a silly question to ask but he asked it and apparently the officer said yes and the king came out with his arm around the queen and they shot him immediately at point blank range apparently petrovich this is allegedly i'm not so sure if this is like historicized or whatever um but petrovich pulled out a concealed handgun somehow uh to you know like last ditch to protect his his master and he also got killed now, all these people are dead already, and you think that that's the end of it, but, like, their bloodlust was not satiated at this point. Their corpses were stabbed with swords. One was torn with a bayonet. They were partially disemboweled. They were hacked with an axe until they were, like, just mutilated beyond recognition, which is just crazy, right? This is, like, I mean, they really fucking hated these people, <laughs> you know, like— to, to go through those links. They took the body of the queen and they pulled it up to the railing of the bedroom and tossed it out, you know, but she was basically naked at this point into the garden. And apparently, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but it's part of the story. So, you know, I'll read it. Why not? Um, it was reported that the assassins attempted to do the same thing, like toss the king over, but one of his hands evidently closed momentarily around the railing so he was dead. It was probably, like, if this is true, it was probably like one of those involuntary muscle spasms, but it like locked onto the, uh, to the railing. And one of the officers cut through the fist with, uh, with a saber. <laughs> and, you know, the way that he writes it is crazy. It's like a bunch of, you know, blood and like falling digits and shit like that fell into the garden. Um, very interesting read. Uh, good find Henry. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and, and we're 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 talking about uh, Chris Clark and and Sleepwalkers. Uh, right. The opening chapter goes over this murder, um, but this is where the story is primarily coming from. The story about the murder, uh, but keep right. on going. Sure. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. 
That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. So, so that that's what happened at the palace in Belgrade. But like a bunch of things were happening all over Belgrade, um, and where you know these these folks had found additional victims, uh, many of them, many of whom were killed. Uh, for example, <clears throat> the queen's two brothers, uh, who were suspected of like you know wanting to usurp the throne or at least come to the throne one of them that they said that you know uh, we, we had mentioned this before that the queen was trying to make it, one of her brothers into the the heir uh th- those guys were taken to a guardhouse close to the palace and they stabbed them um so those guys died uh assassins also broke into the apartments of the prime minister oh jesus these names Dmitria markovich and uh the minister of war milovan Pavlovich, they shot these dudes a lot. Uh, Pavlovich, in particular, got 25 rounds in his body. He w- ended up hiding in a wooden chest, so they just shot the shit out of the chest, and yeah, they killed him. The interior minister, Belimir Theodorovich, I think I did a good job with that one. Um, he was shot, uh, and they thought he was dead, but he actually later recovered from his wounds. Um, and then all the other ministers that they found and arrested, uh, they just placed under arrest. But basically, this was the end of the Obrenovich dynasty that had ruled Serbia throughout most of the country's brief period as a modern independent state. <laughs> you know, within just a couple hours, these these guys basically announced that they ended the Obrenovich line and and the succession to the throne um, of Kara Georgievic, you know who is currently at the time living in Swiss exile. But yeah, that's the fucking story. And I think it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. And that's the, and that's how this family feud concludes with one being erased. The new government is, is, uh, is led by the, the Kara Georgievic family. The new King doesn't actually lead them at all. He's just a figurehead. The, statesman who's actually running this show is is the leader of the radical party so nicola pasik and pasik was deeply committed to the struggle for serbian independence so um things like also like liberal constitutional ideas um were, were brought into serbia afterwards so there was like more freedom of the press and and, and all those i guess better things but with that came the idea of Serbian expansion, which was uh, the entire radical party believe, you know, was was uh, hooked on this, the idea of the greater Serbia and Serbia expansion. They were the party of peasants. And the best way to appeal, no disrespect, but the best way to appeal to the peasant class is through crude patriotism. But it was a popular idea. 
You know, it's like it's a feel good idea. Like we're the best. We're an exceptional people. Gives you it gives you purpose. I can see why, you know, people will I mean, we're talking about dreary, dreary times. And if you're a peasant and uh, you're kind of out of the picture, it's empowering. It's a powerful idea that you're this kind of exceptional race or this exceptional uh you have this kind of exceptional destiny. So uh, Pasek, he, he had been in exile in Russia prior. And while he was in Russia, he became a major player in the pan-Slavic movement. And, and that's where the pan-Slavic, you know, pan-Slavic movements, they, they originate from Russia and they, they make their way into Serbia. The Serbs are South Slavs while the Russians um, or the East Slavs, and then you know they look at the the Poles and stuff as the West Slavs, but you know they they had this camaraderie and shared religion with with the South Slavs, unlike the, you know the, the the Western Slavs who, in many, had converted to Catholicism. There was something called the Draft Plan, this old foreign policy paper that was written in 1844, and uh, Clark says it would be difficult to overstate the influence of this document on generations of Serb politicians and patriots. In time, it became the Magna Carta of Serb nationalism. And the first uh, commandment of uh, Serbian policy was the principle of national unity, meaning the unification of all Serbs within the boundaries of a Serbian state where to pull this back to the beginning of the show, where a Serb dwells, that is Serbia. And this template that's used to create this larger, you know, this greater Serbian state was the Serbian medieval empire, which covered the entirety of, of, of present day Albania, most of Macedonia, uh, and then all of, uh, you know, all of central and northern Greece, they had argued that virtually all the inhabitants of these lands were essentially Serbs. So the new, and, and I guess maybe a modern day way that you can, a modern way comparison, if you want to look at Russia, you know, Russia will be like, hey, they're Russians. They just don't know they're Russians type of thing. Right. You know, when we're when referring to Ukrainians, that is. Yeah. And, and Ukrainians do the same thing. Like they're Ukrainians, they just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are, are. You guys don't even know what you are. You're Ukrainians. You're Russians. It's a lot of it is pseudo. It's it's uh it's kind of pseudo history or you know pseudo science or whatever. Mm-hmm. And all of it so is this, complicated. Period. I know we yeah, said this in, in the beginning. <laughs> all of it is too complicated to really even boil down to one episode at all. Yeah. And uh, that's why we're breaking this World War One origins episode into a bunch of episodes so we can we can kind of flesh out. And, and we're probably not we're not doing this part of the story enough justice because there's so many other things that we're skipping and not probably concentrating on as much. But we're doing our best to get the main points across and not do a, you know, a, a 50 hour audio book. So also, these are the parts that we liked the most. So <laughs> yeah. this is important. 
this this is probably the most important thing to take from this and 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 what i'm trying to kind of combine together is 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 um all, all these things that we spoke about in the beginning and all the things that we we already know about serbia and world war one so first things first there's there's hyper nationalism going on in serbia with this this concept of of greater serbia now the new government created these secret committees and these secret committees they were sponsoring serbian guerrilla movements in different parts of the balkans so these secret committees were were ran by the regicide network that killed king alexander where you know they're the ones who are actually on the ground fostering these movements so guys like abyss um, are the ones who are on the ground and like mentoring and, and training young Serbian guerrillas. But there was a layer of plausible deniability. It's kind of like when the CIA, um, you know, sponsors like uh, death squads in, uh, in Nicaragua or, or uh, sponsors like hardcore Muslim Brotherhood in Syria. There is a layer of plausible deniability with this because after the, the coup in 1903 was so gruesome in serbia that the public facing part of the government kept their distance from the the group that that actually perpetrated the regicide so they could say when when people would bring it up they'd be like hey what are you doing here like are you training these serbian nationals to overthrow their government and um They'd be like, no, we'd have nothing to do with them. Like they're just they're just Serbian nationals. We don't have any connection with them. So there'd always be this layer of uh, of uh, deniability when whenever that would happen. Now, um, this new sense of nationalism brought about a really big, you know, a lot of antagonism between Serbia and Austria, Hungary, um, Austria, Hungary. They they did things like they they sanctioned them. They they did something called the Pig War. Which was uh, essentially that the the Austrian Hungarians they they um they denied uh, Serbian farmers access to their to their markets. However, shit really doesn't hit the fan until 1908. And in 1908, Austria Hungary they annexed Bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, you know, prior to that, Ser- Serbian nationalists were mainly focused on their on their three-way struggle between the the between uh you know serbs bulgarians and turks and that was unfolding in macedonia that was kind of like their main theater that they were concentrating on but um in 1908 they really get hit with the fever their main focus becomes bosnia and uh here is a quote from the british minister of belgrade and this is after 1908 when when because uh, Serbia was furious when Austria Hungary uh, annexed Bosnia. Every patriotic Serb Serbian who takes any interest or active part in politics thinks of the Serbian nation not as merely including the subject of King Peter, but as consisting of all those who are akin to them in race and language. He looks forward consequentially to the eventual creation of a greater Serbia which shall bring into one fold all the different sections of the nation at present divided under Austrian, Hungarian, and Turkish dominion. From his point of view, Bosnia is both geographically and ethnically the heart of great Serbia. 
where is Russia in all this? Because I, I we're, we're talking a lot about the the beef between um between the Serbians and and the Austro-Hungarians for you know the reasons that we talked about. But earlier on, the Russians were kind of like quasi involved in this story until the Serbians flipped their animosity switch towards the Austro-Hungarians. So, and 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 in earlier episodes, we were talking about how there was a strange like balance of power between uh, uh, the the three Eastern uh, empires, the, the Germanic one, which isn't really part of this story in particular, but also Austria-Hungary and Russia. So like what's what's Russia's play in all of this? Because I know they weren't just sitting around doing nothing. So um, Russia's tacitly been supporting the Serbians. However, what what actually kind of makes relations with with Austria, Hungary, and Russia, and Germany very hostile is that they're still kind of cordial with each other. They're not at war yet. Russia actually gives Austria the green light to annex Bosnia. They asked them first. They said, you know, if you want to do it, do it. We're not going to do anything. And then that that actually comes out in the public that mm. that the Russians, um, the Russian government let gave Austria, Hungary, the the green light. They did it because they had worked out a deal where Russia would get better access to Constantinople and then Russian the, the Russians would get you know better access through the, the, the Turkish Straits at times of peace and war. But when the deal came to light, the British actually got involved and they stepped in and they started they opposed that that second part of the deal. So the Russians ended up getting nothing at all. And then when the Russians were uh, thinking about uh, opposing the annexation after the deal came through, the Germans stepped in and said that, hey, like if you if you don't recognize the annexation of uh, of Bosnia, then we'll go to war with you. So Russia at this time had just lost the war to Japan and they were in a they were in a weak spot. So they just they felt a lot of. um, and also Serbia was mad at them as well. So they were kind of getting it from all angles and they kind of had to sit there and take it on the chin. Mm-hmm. So this caused the Russian public to be outraged at the at the Russian government. And Ru- Russian politics changed foreign policy wise where they had to pivot and they actually started supporting Serbia a lot more. And, and um, in, in terms of uh uh, support, su- supporting like you know the the internal struggle because again something that was going on was that the Serbians were pulling at the heartstrings of of Russia and then you know the Pan Slavic movement was you know originated from from them so you know there'd be Serbian thinkers and nationalists who would be trained and 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 uh, taught and learn about all this stuff in in Russia um, so it was this this collision happens that makes the relationship between uh, all these countries just way worse due due to the annexation of Bosnia. Um, so that's that's kind of where they come in. But I think for the next episode that we talk about it, because we're almost we're over an hour and twenty minutes, and um, I want to do the actual lead up of of the the murder of, of Archduke Ferdinand and 
how that actually took place and, and what were the politics behind it. Because we're at 19, right now we're in the year 1908. There's still seven more years before the war breaks out. So that will be the next episode where we get deeper into that and and how this secret network forms and then you know who were who was Archduke Ferdinand anyway like why why was he important what was his actual policy uh towards the Serbs so shall we wrap this one up yep sounds like a good spot okay um all right guys thanks again for listening to another episode of bro history if you want to support the show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. Please rate and review the podcast, whether you are on Apple or whether you are on Spotify. Please rate and review. Another way you can support the show is that you join us on our Patreon site. Uh, join us on Patreon, Bro History, or Patreon slash Bro History. Danny, anything else to add? No, man. That's all. All right. Peace, guys. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.